Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we had promised in our last episode to talk about the land, but in an outburst of events and um, intellectual developments, we are going to delay that till the next episode and instead take a slight detour and spend this episode instead talking about postmodernism. In fact, you could call this a primer on postmodernism for the perplexed. How do you like that alliteration, Dad? That's uh, really, really... uh, um... I was going to say that's really sexy, but that wouldn't be appropriate in a father-daughter relationship. <laughs> okay, that was weird. Let's just move right along. <laughs> Already an illustration of postmodernism. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, you know, I'm, I'm always the one who's better at the, the clickbaity and uh, uh, marketing-oriented um, uh, titles there. So I'm still pretty proud of a Hegel with all the fixins. I don't know if anyone else found it funny, but I sure did. Okay, so... Dad, you you have had some breakthrough insight into postmodernism recently. So why don't you start by giving us the uh, the reasons that this suddenly became urgent for you? Well, you know, I've been interested in this topic for a very long time, and our very popular podcast on uh, critical social theory was a kind of a, a, a an exploration of these themes. But uh, um, you know, postmodernism is a very confusing concept because it presupposes an understanding of the modernism or the modernity, which is, uh, which is coming prior and what is coming after. So it's, it's, it's really kind of more of a descriptive term than a substantive one. So I think we just simply want to ask in this episode, what really is postmodernism? And I would answer, supposedly... I mean, this is kind of the popular understanding of postmodernism. It's the death throes of the modern world. Now, notice that question goes begging, what do you mean by the modern world? And specifically, then, it's an ironic and fragmented human consciousness that is emerging these days. Why? Because truth itself is a social construct. And language does not refer to any reality outside of itself. It's just discourse about other discourses. And discourses, in fact, reflect um, social practices, um, and they merely project the conceptual schemes and values of a community or a tradition in which these uh, discourses are nurtured. Okay, can I ask a question here? Yes, please do. That's I'm just describing what supposedly what postmodernism is. Okay, so I guess the first question is who actually is living or abiding this way? Like this is this is clearly like a thing among philosophers and you know maybe um, consistent secularists or something, and maybe it trickles down in vast ways um, to ordinary people. But that doesn't actually accord with most of my experience of most ordinary people going about their lives. So where should we like look for this phenomenon manifesting itself? I think where we find this, con- it's, a, it's a state of consciousness that we're describing. And I think it's certainly very specific to Europe and North America. <clears throat> I think it penetrates into the two-thirds world uh, intellectual elites 
um, in forms of post-colonialism or something like that. But primarily it has to do with the knowledge class, uh, uh, the, ed- the educated elites. Uh, and that's not simply in, in the higher education or even secondary education. It's also made its way into corporate, um, corporate uh, global uh, corporations and uh, kind of the globalist ideology um, that uh, the corporations are now actively uh, utilizing for their own advantage. Oh, okay. Like, can you give an example of that? Well, sure. Just uh, Mark Zuckerberger just acknowledged that the FBI told him to bury the Hunter Biden story on the cusp of the last election. <laughs> and, but, and, why, but why is that not just straight up corruption? Why is that postmodern specifically? Uh, because the pre- presupposition is that truth is always a power play. Truth is always um, something that's deployed in order to advance the interests of one community or another. And so the fact that there might have been truth value in Hunter Biden's uh, abandoned laptop and what that revealed about the connections this family had uh, to foreign uh, financial uh, interests was deemed not relevant to the purpose of advancing um, a certain kind of discourse prior to the last election. Now, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, acknowledged that simply as a fact. And this is a really hot topic in the United States right now. Um, uh, and it's like, a, it's like a hall of mirrors because everybody is, is, dumb, is at a loss for how do we get an anchor in any kind of objective reality here when it's just one dis- discourse, Trump's discourse versus Biden's discourse or something like that. Okay, so I think then the point would be there have always been cynical and corrupt actors through all of history doing something like this. But the the postmodern approach of today's elite classes is to say that, in fact, everything is always cynical and corrupt in a power play. It's not just in these halls of power or halls of mirrors of power, but it's all the way up and all the way down and everything. And I think it does penetrate into the rest of society. Um. Uh, increasingly so, that um, that's your truth, this is my truth, um, and if we can't get along, I'm going to pursue my truth at your expense. Right. So, like, we often hear people, like, who are very uncomfortable with uh, Christian evangelization practices because it's suggesting that Christianity is better and other people should be our religion and not their religion when every religion is equally good and have equal claims to truth and maybe all get you to the same place in the end. It would be something like that, what used to be called more popularly relativism. Right. I think that's right. I think I think that uh, – and then, of course, comes this um, – reductionist move that I think you find so offensive that the discourses can be reduced to the uh, uh, power positions of the communities and traditions which they represent. So, for example, you have teenagers in Virginia who are taught that, uh, among other things, uh, uh, being white and Christian and Protestant makes you a hyper-privileged person. 
you know, and and so if you cannot speak out of your experience as white or Christian or Protestant without um, uh, uh, unjustly exercising unwarranted power. So check, check it up, check your privilege, be quiet, be silent. Checkmate, you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So if that is the, the basic parameters of what postmodernism, you know, I guess you can't really say it claims it because that would be too assertive and certain. But if that's the texture and feeling of postmodernism, you said you have kind of a new insight into how it relates to modernism. So why don't you talk us through that? Maybe you need to just say a word or two about what modernism is by contrast. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, first of all, let me make it clear that I think there's some obvious truth in this state of consciousness called postmodernism. Uh, in the podcast on pragmatism, I explained, Sarah, how I think anti-foundationalism, the idea that our discourses cannot be clearly founded on a privileged access to truth with a capital T, uh, and that, in fact, uh, the pursuit of truth has to be timely and constantly changing along with changing reality. And so a pragmatism, pragmatist does not give up on the reality of truth. He just thinks that truth is timely rather than timeless. That's a simple point there. And, you know, a Lutheran theologian, Vitor Vestel, who died several years ago, I think has also explained, I think, very powerfully the reality of what he called hybridity. Uh, and what he means by that is that the post-colonialist theologians like himself uh, appropriate Western traditions, particularly dissident Western traditions, for example, like Martin Luther, <laughs> to, to critique predominant forms of the modern West and its colonial project. So it's, it's kind of a dumb thing to go with um, Rousseau and project some kind of noble savage who has this basic uncorrupted innocence until he contacts Western civilization. In fact, the whole world now has been touched by Western civilization, and there's all kinds of syntheses and hybrid hybrids that are coming out of it. I think what you and I worry about is, in the process of postmodernism, we're witnessing the the dissolution, the dissolving, uh, the evaporation of the human self as a particular identity uniquely and preciously created in an organic span stemming from birth and terminating in death. And, and this idea that you are something, you are somebody, you are a person, because you are related to God, your creator and redeemer, who is working you out in your actual course on the earth. Uh, that sense of the genuine human individual, the genuine human person, is being uh, evacuated in postmodern consciousness. And the great example of this is the, uh, the, the philosopher Alistair McIntyre's discussion of the literary critic Paul Lamont. Paul Lamont was a Belgian Nazi who disguised his history and reinvented himself 
to have a career as a Yale literary critic championing precisely postmodernism. So there's a clue there. What is it about postmodernism that allows you to forget who you were, uh, indeed to disguise who you were, in order to uh, go on without any reckoning with who you were? You know, I that really <laughs> strikes me in contrast to the Apostle Paul, who constantly reminds his auditors of who he used to be. He never hides or downplays what he used to be. And what so there there is real transformation. There is a new self that emerges, but he, he never disavows in the sense of denying responsibility for the person that he once was. Okay, so let me let me this is a, a, an extreme overstatement, but maybe as a heuristic device for thinking about modernism and postmodernism. Modernism is interested in the outright conquest of people, persons and bodies, and postmodernism continues that by uh, maybe pretending to avoid and critiquing the conquest from the outside, but instead destroys people from the inside out, eroding their their givenness and their placidness and their histories and their values and their specificity by making everything fragmented. And then I suppose that opens the way for a new form of, of bodily and other kinds of conquest. How does that sound? Oh, yeah, I think that's spot on. That's exactly the right answer, I think, to our question, what is postmodernism? In other words, postmodernism is modernism continued by other means. What has happened is the modern idea of the thinking thing of Descartes mastering Descartes. the extent... Descartes, Dad, Descartes! Descartes! Oh, all right. I got. No, I always go forget to put Descartes before the horse. I, all right. No. Okay. So you made me lose my train of thought there. <laughs> I, I can't not hold you to it now after that outburst we had a few episodes back. Okay. All right. Go on. Okay. Postmodernism, I say, is a false state of consciousness. It's an ideology masking precisely the continuation of the modern sovereign self that was invented with Rene Descartes' thinking thing, extending sovereignty over all extending things, up to and including one's own body. Uh, and what we see in postmodernism is, the, why I call it false consciousness, is because we know today that this assertion of the sovereign, this dualistic anthropology of mind over matter, we know it's false, and we know its assertion of sovereignty is utterly ungrounded, but we are addicted to it. We think that our dignity and personhood depends on the assertion of sovereignty over extended things. And knowing that it's ungrounded now, we're happy to let all the big grand narratives of the sovereign self dissolve, disappear, uh, all the stories of how it was um, established in the past can be eroded away, and we're left with inclusion and diversity. In other words, let a thousand sovereignty projects blossom, right? And uh, let them all flourish and blossom, and we'll all get along together in a new world in which everyone can pursue their own sovereignty project at peace with all the others. What 
a recipe for disaster. <laughs> All right. Let me ask a few questions to, to make this a little bit clearer, because I think the way Western Civ is is taught or, you know, if it's taught anymore, I don't know. The impression you get is that with the modernist movement, the Enlightenment, the sovereign self is the alternative to the self that is subject to the king and the church, right? So it's the person who actually has no, who also has no individual value because they are subjected to ecclesiastical and monarchical powers. And so the great breakthrough of the Enlightenment is giving people inherent rights and dignity. But it sounds like you are arguing that the actual thing that happened, I mean, that, that might have happened too, but this philosophical underpinning from Descartes is actually doing something different than that um, that kind of thing that we generally, you and I also applaud in the development of, of uh, political freedom and rights in the West. So can you say something about that? Yes, but it, it, it goes back to Luther at the Diet of the Worm, standing before the emperor and defying the pope. My conscience is bound to these words of God. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. That's already the assertion of the conscience bound to the sovereignty of God, not self-sovereignty, but to the sovereignty of God, which gives Luther in that heroic moment the stamina, the, the, the courage to, to defy Pope and Emperor. Right. Well, and you see that in a lot, especially like in, in, uh, in the British Isles, like fighting this out, is the rights of like, say, the Puritans or the nonconformists to abide by their understanding of their conscience bound to God and, and not to King or the Church of England. So but but what you're but what I'm trying to get at is that there's something different going on in this Cartesian project that has given us modernism and postmodernism. So what exactly is the difference? Like what's the break with what came before? If it isn't if it isn't the enlightenment that gave us freedom of conscience because of our relationship to God, then what is Descartes doing that sets us on this unholy path of a sovereign self but not in a good way? The grounding of it is an intuition. I think therefore I am. The grounding of it, the grounding of the sovereignty is I cannot doubt that I doubt. And that, that is the rock on which the, the foundational rock, this self-intuition, this self-awareness, this self-knowledge, that I am um, certain about my own selfhood. That's the foundation. That's very different from Luther saying, I'm certain about these words of God. My conscience is captive to the Lordship of Christ. I will not surrender my intellect or my soul to heteronymous demands. You see the difference? Isn't that clear? Uh, I, I just think the way that we are, we're, we have received the story, it's not clear. They seem to be the same. I, the way I've always heard it talked about, like not by you, obviously, but is that they're basically the same thing. And that the, but I think what you're driving at here is that the modernist break no longer is, the, the self is no longer primarily in relationship to God and then through God related to other people and the institutions of life and civilization. That the person in the sovereign self is only immediately related to its own self and then moves from this kind of like solipsistic center outward in so-called freedom to make connections to others. Is that the difference? Yeah, I think that's exactly what the difference is, of course, yes. Uh, the Christian says, Jesus is Lord, and I will not bow down to any other. 
The modern self says, I am the Lord, I am the captain of my own ship, Walt Whitman, I am the master of my own destiny, I will not surrender my autonomy to any other. All right, so I I think part of the problem here is that um, there's different ways of talking about individualism or personhood, and I think there's just so much slip and slide and overlap between them that that's why I'm pushing so hard to make clear what the distinction is. Because, I mean, uh, as I've I've said to you before, I'm I'm always a little bit nervous when um, uh, high-minded Christians decry individualism as the worst thing that ever happened, Um, you know, and I think what they mean by it is, is the individual in this Cartesian solipsistic sense, not related to God, not part of a history, not part of a community. But I guess what I see now, maybe having lived more of my life in the the breakdown <laughs> than these sorts of folks, what I see is that what that does is it turns individuals into pawns for groupings. Um, and what I see is a rise of total control and claim on souls and bodies for whatever demographic they belong to. What I I just came up with the term the demographic self. And it's not even the sovereign self of modernity anymore. It's the the demographic self that maybe by now is is so empty and impoverished and disconnected that it's better to simply be a subset of a demographic than to be sovereign anymore. And that to me is very close to what Hannah Arendt is describing as the uh, proto conditions for totalitarianism. Well, no, I'd no disagreement with you at all, but let's understand that's exactly why I'm calling postmodernism a false consciousness. It knows deep down that the modern self is a fiction. It knows deep down that the sovereignty project is ungrounded, and it resolves the sovereignty project into the power dynamics between contending discourses reflecting contending communities, which then can be kind of crudely grouped into oppressor and oppressed. Um, Never mind the fact that there are so many different layers of oppressor and oppressed that this whole invention of intersectionality has come to to, uh, parse, to, to interpret. Okay, so then maybe when what I would uncharitably characterize as a profound sense of entitlement that I see in all kinds of people in all kinds of obnoxious ways, maybe what the entitlement is is a manifestation of a sense of betrayal that their sovereign self is not getting what they want because a sovereign can have whatever they want whenever they want it. That's the point of being sovereign. And so the the uh, the rage and demands for all kinds of entitlements is actually the outworking of this sense of betrayal instead of questioning whether that sovereign promise was ever valid in the first place. Exactly. No, that's why exactly why I call it a false consciousness. And uh, uh, it's something that has to be exposed. Uh, the truth is, I, 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 as a Christian theologian, I would say this. The truth is that human dignity is grounded in the calling to... Uh, to resemble God, to be like God, to be uh, a living personification of of the image of God. Uh, And of course, the realization of that human dignity depends on what what, uh, uh, belief in God that you have, what faith in God that you have. If you think that God is an arbitrary tyrant, 
then you think that resembling God means I get to be a little tyrant in my own life. My my will uh, is a dictate and others must uh, submit to it or something like that, which is the very definition of tyranny, of lawless self-assertion. Uh, and of course, for Christians, the image of God is Jesus Christ, the Lord who became a servant, uh, who did not count equality with God something to be coveted, but uh, gave it up in order to become a servant of us all. That's how one truly images God. So you have both the freedom, as Luther said, both the freedom of the Christian, that is, I have Jesus as Lord, I will not bow down to any other, I will not sacrifice my intellect, I will not sacrifice my conscience to any other, categorically. That's my freedom in Christ, and I will speak the truth from that perspective as I see it, let the chips fall where they will. But I exercise that freedom and power for the sake of Christ-like love, for the sake of others who are poor in power and need my advocacy and my defense. It's freedom to love, as Paul explains in Galatians 5. Right. So there is a kind of sovereignty to the self, but it's a sovereignty under a greater sovereign, and it's a sovereignty paired with servanthood. Exactly right. Yes. And that's substantively different from the modern project and its underground continuation in postmodernism. So where do we go from here? Uh, yeah. Why don't we back? Where do we go from here? Uh, I think we let's back up a little bit and talk about the um, the historical background of pre modernism. You know, the the medieval West believed in truth, and it defined truth as the adequation of mind to the reality outside of the mind. Why? Why did it believe that truth was possible as the mind adequately relates itself to the reality outside of the mind? Because the medieval Christian believed that God was the, the creator, was the author of both the mind and of the world outside the mind, and as such grounded their correlation in the discovery of truth, which was laid upon human beings as a vocation and a task. Doesn't Descartes later on say that God wouldn't deceive him about his sense perceptions? Yeah, God, Descartes himself in the Descartes. meditation, Descartes himself in the meditations, um, uh, does return to the perfect being as the metaphysical bridge between mental things um, and extended things. Of course, but this is a denuded metaphysical deity. It's not God the creator that's known in Christian faith. Um, and that actually Descartes' um, usage of perfect being theology to bridge this gap was discarded uh, very quickly by the Enlightenment. So it's kind of a last gasp of medievalism. Yeah, it is. Well, Descartes was educated by Descartes. the Jesuits. Descartes was educated by the Jesuits, and he actually also employed St. Augustine's argument against the skeptics in the meditations. So there are these traces of, of the Christian heritage in Descartes. Uh, 
But anyway, look at what it comes down to is that after Dakar, the grounding of truth in God was abandoned, and it was sought instead in the prestige of the rising sciences, so that truth now became the adequation of mind to the natural world. And then you would have to ask, without God, how could the mind discover truth in nature? And that led to this kind of new development of Descartes' thinking thing. It's called the transcendental self of reason, freedom, and purpose. That's Kant's thinking, who asked the question, what are, what are the conditions for the possibility uh, that the human mind can actually know things scientifically and can act morally and can uh, 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 live purposefully? And so the conditions for the possibility of those assertions of human sovereignty was sought in a what we, what we call transcendentalism. Um, this is not like uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's transcendentalism. No, it is. Actually, Emerson thought he was oh. interpreting Kant. Yeah, no, absolutely. No yes. kidding. Yeah, really. I didn't know that. Yeah, really. Huh. Um, and, and so this is how the me- metaphysics continues in the Enlightenment. Uh, it's no longer the old-fashioned kind of metaphysics that, that inquires into uh, the first cause of all things, uh, like, it, like under the influence of Aristotle, the medieval Christians did. But now it's metaphysics in terms of how is the human mind so rationally powerful, purposive, and capable of conducting uh, human conduct uh, morally. Uh, metaphysics then, and Kant called this the noumenal ideas of God, freedom, and immortality, that, that the mind comes up with these ideas that it cannot prove their truth, but they are absolutely essential to living a rational life. And that is, again, like Descartes, the idea of God as the connector of mind and matter. It's the moral freedom and its purpose of activity and so forth. And so, and, and Kant actually imagined human freedom as the ability to ignore all material incentives, what he called inclinations. And in spite of the causal network in which the body is enmeshed, the mind can actually uh, perform an act of genuine freedom uh, without any regard for material consequences, positive or negative, in order to do the right thing. And that was this idea of freedom that Kant posited. So you see, Sarah, this is just a new form of metaphysics. Now what's happened since the time of Kant is that we've lost faith also in this transcendental self. Uh, we yeah, say I should say so. <laughs> yeah, we say we're free according to the narrative descending from the Enlightenment, uh, but we know that we're not. We know that we're rather conditioned by an infinitude of interlocking causalities. Uh in the, we know that we're in the thrall of unconscious powers. And if we're wealthy, high rollers like Bernie Madoff or Jeffrey Epstein, we get our jollies by gaming the system. 
Or, if we want to piggyback on those high roller types, we sell our rational minds to the highest bidder. That's where we're at in postmodernism. Yeah. And I think kind of more recent developments that have been um, allowed a fiction to develop because of internet avatars and the ability to pretend to be someone other than you are, there's this kind of deep hatred of being stuck with yourself. So we went from being a sovereign self without God to absolutely despising the self that we're stuck with being. Like, you were stuck with this parents and this lineage and this skin color and this sex. What an outrage. Um, and so instead of glorifying this self, we actually despise it. In fact, I was saying to Andrew the other day, you know, there's a uh, philosophy's always tried to say what makes human beings different from every other species. And my new definition is the human species is the only species that despises itself. Yeah. I, I, there you're, you're beginning to sound like Nietzsche, that uh, uh, human, all too human, we need to overcome this humanity that we are because we're stuck with these highly conditioned body, material bodies located at a specific time and place and lineage and genealogy, etc., etc. But, you know, see, here is how modernity continues despite this pervasive disgust uh, that modernity has created about the actual human beings we are. Because now we assert that with the uninhibited exercise of the will to power, the self can simply reinvent itself. We can make ourselves new. We, no one knows what we can be until we actually have the freedom and the courage to remake ourselves in a thousand different ways. And everyone must withhold any judgment about this because that's regressive. Um, you know, philosophers like Spinoza, Nietzsche, and Deleuze um, desire to overcome what they consider to be a reactionary form of self-assertion, um, which would be resentful and possessive and so forth. And they want to celebrate a self-assertion as a kind of a blossoming of human creativity out of the hidebound inhibitions and constructions of human identity inherited from the past. So that's Nietzsche's Ubermensch, that's Superman or Superperson, or something like that. And I think that's a lot of what's going on. Sarah, you know, in the younger generation today, they don't like their bodies. They don't like who they are. They don't like their the consciousness that they've inherited. Yet they think that somehow there's a self in them that has the sovereign power and uh, 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 sense to uh, discard what they have been and make themselves new. Yeah. And, you know, and it's it's partly the extraordinary deprivations of their education, because as long as there have been people at least writing things down, we know that there has always been a profound sense that the the given self has to be cultivated and trained. You don't just turn out as a person that you like and admire. You actually have to work at it. That's what philosophy was originally. It was, you know, and in the grand sense, not in the, in the degenerate sense, self-improvements and, and taking what is given 
given about you and making the best of it. I think this is also why things like merit and talent have become such offensive terms, because like if you love more than anything basketball and you want to be a great NBA player, but you're five foot four, I'm sorry, you're just not probably going to cut it for the (laughs) NBA. And you just can't change that. You're just stuck with that. You can be stuck with a simultaneous passion for basketball and a morphological form that does not permit you to ascend to the ranks. Or you could have a passionate love of opera and want more than anything to be an opera singer and have, like me, a fairly lousy singing voice. Well, you're just stuck with that. You're not going to be able to change that. And so there's something so unfair. And, and I, you know, in a, a genuine sense, things are unfairly distributed. That is part of reality. But, you know, the classical sense of philosophy is to help people come to terms with the givenness of who they are and make the best of it and not, as you said, degenerate into resentment and having to take others down in order to build yourself up. That's right. And, you know, you, you, what you've inherited, both physically, physiologically, materially, culturally, that's your starting point. It's not your ending point. It's the platform on which, as I think another way of saying what you were saying, that's the platform on which, from which you proceed. And it includes, of course, for Christian theology, it includes transformation. Because the self that we've inherited is a self that has fallen into sinfulness, and it needs redemption through forgiveness and and the power for new life and so forth. Um, In many ways, this postmodernism is parasitical upon certain uh, Christian beliefs about the human predicament. But let me kind of, Sarah, I want to transition to the cash value of this discussion of postmodernism as a false consciousness in order to illustrate how, how it illuminates the frustrations of contemporary politics. How very capitalistic of you. Yeah, right. The cash value, it's pragmatism, not capitalism. Okay. Okay. You know, I don't dislike capitalism, so that's actually a compliment for me, but please well, proceed. There are many, many capitalisms. Some are good and some are not so good. Well said. Alistair MacIntyre, the philosopher, I'm sure I've quoted him before on the podcast, said, we Americans, we are all liberals, conservative liberals, liberal liberals, and radical liberals. What he meant by that is Republicans, Democrats, and libertarians, respectively. Now, the meaning of the word liberal is that one prioritizes individual freedom and rights above all other values. In other words, the modern secular assertion of the right of the sovereign self to pursue its own happiness and create its own destiny. I am the captain of my own ship, the master of my own destiny. Now, McIntyre's critical point is that such liberalism is so thin and so impoverished for the very reasons we've discussed in this podcast shorn of the nurturing narrative of the uh, Christian God that created this self in Western history, but now ending in this curious self-destruction that we're witnessing um, as it proceeds in postmodernism. It can't end but in utter public confusion and governmental paralysis. Why? Because my assertion of freedom and rights contradicts your assertion of freedom and rights, which each of us prioritize according to our own limited, actually materially, culturally, 
uh, temporally and spatially limited perspective, which is also beset with a certain kind of sinful egocentrism. So the result is going to be inevitably a war of all against all. Now, here's the case in point, is the brouhaha over the Supreme Court's decisions uh, overturning Roe versus Wade. Now, here's how I see it. Here's the unpalatable truth. Both those advocating unrestricted access to guns and those advocating unrestricted access to abortion are each prioritizing above all other values the individual sovereign right of bodily autonomy for self-defense, with the further presumption that no good reasons ever need to be provided for that access to the means of self-defense of the sovereign self. The two positions on guns and abortions are mere images of each other. What do you think of that? <laughs> I think that's an astounding insight. But, you know, you're right, because both of them, like you said, are about bodily autonomy, and they disagree about what the greatest threat to bodily autonomy is. But that's fundamentally what it is. And both of them, I would also say, you know, are cheap legal and political solutions to intractable human problems. Like, you know, human beings really do commit violence against each other. Uh, some commitment to self-protection is legitimate. And there is something genuinely, again, in the, the grand scheme of things, unfair that it's women's bodies who are the ones that bear children and all the costs that go with them, and that women can be the victims of violence and get pregnancies they don't want. But also they can have... Uh, get pregnant without it being under violent circumstances and feel invaded. You know, and if, if bodily autonomy is the, the central quality or the central concern, then in that respect, both the right and the left, as you said, are, are simply identical. But I think maybe I would ratchet it up one level is that these are both concerns to preserve the, the sovereign and bodily autonomous self, but they are both icy both the extreme right and the extreme left in the U.S., becoming more and more interested in controlling others. So I think it's kind of a fiction. Maybe this is your point. Maybe this is the modernism behind the postmodernism, which is what seems to be preserving my individual rights is turning into my figuring out how I can band together with others to control you. And that's what I see as being the common term across the extremists is a lust for control. And now with... Um, surveillance and and uh, internet technologies that is becoming possible to a degree never before imaginable in human history. What do you make of that? Well, sure, because then you have the like the the superficial talking points that any reservations about the practice of abortion reflect a war on women. Um, uh, and of course, then you, that is the further conceit that uh, such a position claims to be speaking on behalf of all women when the most, uh, you know, we know demographically that a considerable amount of the opposition uh, to abortion on demand comes from women. Um, and also from younger people. Millennials are apparently among the most pro-life, um, you know, age stratum in America, which is surprising. But I think if you've lived in a world where you your your right to life has always been highly, you know, um, in question, I mean, you got lucky, you made it through to birth. I can understand that. 
Yeah, and then the opposite reduction is that uh, those who um, um, argue for the right to self-defense and the means of self-defense and ownership of guns uh, are uh, simply uh, reflections of white supremacy, white privilege, and and things like that, which, you know, utterly overlooks the reality that most gun violence occurs among um, uh, impoverished communities of color. Uh, and the, um, uh, the need uh, for self-protection in these criminalized environments uh, uh, is, you know, is like the elephant in the room that goes... Uh, uh, that goes without uh, serious discussion, it seems to me. Yeah. Oof. So now what? What can we as theologians do? Well, you know, you know, it's it's this. We're in a very difficult mess, and I think this coming winter, with the serious economic uh, and hunger problems that are going to be caused. Uh, uh, is going to really be putting all of us, um, uh, these are going to be times that try the souls of men and women. Uh, We're we're in a contemporary confusion that's fueled by rage, which, by the way, as you would say, is, uh, I think, is cultivated by these uh, huge uh, corporations intent on keeping our minds off of their consolidation of political power uh, so that rational negotiation reconciling interests cannot occur. And that's why I've said many times that what we're experiencing is what Germany did in the 1920s. We can call it Weimarization. And Vladimir Putin and Chairman Xi smugly watched the fulfillment of their prediction of the end of democracy as the sovereign selves of modernity simply collide in a war of all against all. And by the way, the cynical Putin and Xi are simply more honest postmoderns asserting their own sovereignties. <laughs> oh, I think they're they're quite nakedly okay with conquest. Yeah, <laughs> I don't I think, think they so. ever ha- had to pretend that they didn't value that. Okay, well, well, that's that's bleak. And as I always say, you can never go wrong betting on the self-destruction of the human race. But who'd want to win that bet? Because even if you win, you lose. So um, let me let me try out um, a a a word or two of hope here. And you can tell me if you think that is legitimate um, and, and hope, not optimism. So uh, as we're recording this, I'm back from two months traveling across the U.S. for our summer furlough. And uh, we visited a lot of different congregations, saw lots of different family members, friends, old and new, um, started out on the East Coast, ended up on the West Coast and saw every time zone in between, actually. Um, And I saw places that were very, 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 very liberal left wing. I saw places that were very, very, very conservative right wing. And you could definitely, as we talk to people, feel the anxiety about the the polarization and ongoing concerns about COVID and about inflation and all this, all the things. So that's all true. And I, you know, uh, one thing about how humans work is, you know, 
what we pay attention to is what we become and what we think to be the case becomes the case, not in, not in the way the sovereign self might might like. It, it operates more um, independently and uh, occasionally demonically than that. But on the other hand, and I think this is just as much of a true statement, what we saw was a lot of functioning communities and functioning townships and um, services and people and um, strong relationships and actually a really good life. So, you know, part of what frustrates me about Americans, and this is as much directed towards the people who hate America as the ones who say America is the greatest country on earth, but have never been anywhere else and have no point of comparison. (laughs) I've spent a lot of my life outside of the United States. And you know what? Actually, life is really good in the United States. And um, you may not get be able to easily and cheaply get everything that you want, but you can very easily get everything that you need. And there is a ton of work available and there's a ton of stuff available and the roads are all basically paved and you can get from one place to another. Yes, gas costs more than it used to. But it was sort of astonishing to me how, you know, we'd listen to people relay all their anxieties about all the political and cultural stuff. And then I would look around at their homes or say, it seems like you're doing okay. And they'd be like, oh yeah, actually we're doing okay. Now, of course, this isn't everybody. There are always people who are doing worse than others. But I think there is a kind of frightening self-fulfilling prophecy quality to the anxiety and the polarization. And this is one of the reasons why I've become so um, suspicious of and angry about the the algorithms and the social media that are have proven beyond any question of a doubt to be designed to amplify outrage and distrust. If people could just step back and look at reality, and if they knew what it's like in other parts of the world, they'd say, like, we should all just calm the X down <laughs> and and recognize what we've been given and work towards things that are good and beautiful. And I think it's entirely possible. I don't know if people will do it because it's also true that human beings are animals and there is a bloodlust deep within us. And maybe it's just going to happen. But I don't think it has to. I don't think we're in any sort of fatalistic situation. And um, there's a lot of really good stuff going on. I wish that got was capable of capturing the imagination and attention of people the way the bad stuff does. Yeah, Sarah, that's that's really hopeful to hear you talk that way. But let me just point out that you have kind of a um, selective sample of American life in the fact that primarily you were visiting Christians and Christian communities, um, which have become increasingly a, a distinct minority within these United States. Now, that's, I'm just making an observation there. That's not to discredit what you're saying, because I think that's actually how hope can be reinserted into what is becoming an increasingly desperate situation. Um, and that is to say, uh, my experience as a preacher, this is very interesting, you know, because I always post my sermons on Facebook. And I know a lot of the people who respond with comments and approbation of my sermons. And I'm always, I always marvel at the fact that uh, 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 readers of the sermon who come from diametrically opposite ends of the current cultural and political polarization in the United States uh, will express appreciation for the Christian message that they've heard in the sermon. Now, I suppose if you're a partisan in these culture wars, you'll be saying something like, well, that's because you're not taking a stand in the culture wars. 
And if you did clearly, then you would see how one side or the other would would uh, uh, be turned off by what you're saying and resist what you're saying, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I'm saying, Jesus is Lord. I don't need to play your games. I need to assert <laughs> my own conscience bound to the word of God and the freedom to love that that allows me to advocate for and uh, uh, embody in my my life and practice in the world. And uh, if we can create Christian communities in the midst of this darkness where people can be brought together and they can humbly recognize that their political opinions in fact reflect their concrete interests because of their locations and their finite beings located in particular ways, socially, economically, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so they have a certain finitude. They have blind spots. They can't see everything comprehensively. And they suffer from uh, sinfulness, uh, being curved into oneself as though my own belly were the center of the universe. And that the Christian life is a struggle against that egocentric sinfulness. And an, a, the educated life is one that wants to get beyond its narrow perspective to see the world as others see it. I think that would be the way we can be straightened out, rectified, delivered, both from autonomy and heteronomy into the new theonomy of beloved community. <laughs> you know, a few years back, um, when I was still editor of Lutheran Forum, our common friend, Derek Nelson, Lutheran theologian, wrote a piece. And I remember one line in it was something like, I still believe that the congregation is the best way God has given us for transforming the world. And at the time I thought, are you kidding? A congregation? Like, <laughs> have you ever attended a church? <laughs> but um, I have to say, I've really kind of come around on the view, and that partly reflects being in like a, a pretty cheerful and functional church right now. But it's exactly the way actually the church witnesses to the polis and to the powers is by refusing to let them be the ultimate interlocutor. Like you were saying, with all the interest in the empire context of the New Testament, um, the Apostle Paul does not make the Roman Empire his ultimate interlocutor. He can give it its due and then talk about things that matter a whole lot more and not let it have the be the final, you know, enemy, uh, even much less the, right. you know, the final mm -hmm. good. And, um, and so what I would really like to see, the, the churches that seem to be flourishing best are the ones that stridently guard the space and say, okay, we, we all have different opinions and different ideas about policies and politics. But here in this space, we are leaving those at the door, not because we're quietistic, not because they don't matter, but because it matters so much that we can be together as children of the same God and saved by the same Redeemer and have this worship time together. And then the second we leave this place, then let's duke it out. Let's have, you know, the necessary fights because nobody sees everything. And the way you get anywhere good is by people genuinely holding to different convictions and testing them, sharpening them against each other. The churches that, that troubled me most of the ones I saw were the ones that had made their their socio-political commitments extremely clear, and um, whatever they signaled, they attracted very, very narrow demographics and alienated a whole lot of people. And it was it was 
an ironic thing, and maybe this is harder for uh, children of the baby boom generation to accept, but actually you can be a lot more politically effective by refusing to be political at all in the obvious sense. Uh, maybe partisan is a, is a better word now. But I, I think we're in a place now where cultivating the community that does not have ultimate reference to the state or its policies or, or parties, but to itself and to each other and to God, and then sending out to people and really taking seriously their vocation to fight it out in the real world. But be, but I think it would be a different kind of fight if it's coming from a place where we still know that every Sunday we gather together again and we're worshiping the same Lord, and that's what matters most. Well, I think the words of Jesus here are perfectly cogent. You have heard it how it is among the Gentiles, how they lord it over <laughs> one another. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be greatest must become the servant of all. The, the, the quality of the Christian community's life, the congregational life, is to manifest the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that is itself the, the hopeful thing inserted into uh, this uh, des increasingly desperate situation of postmodernity. Now, I just want to conclude, Sarah, with some reflections on where this leaves theology. Um, that's which we have, we spoke very hopefully now and nicely about lifting up congregational life. Uh, but why should congregational life uh, be the cutting edge um, of a redemptive and hopeful alternative to the gathering darkness around it? Why should that be true? And I think a lot of pe people who sense this set of problems we've described in this podcast, a lot of theologians, um, believe that a return to classical Christian Platonism of the bygone era of Christendom is the hope. And you know, I regard that as sophisticated nostalgia. Uh, <laughs> yes, I know, a, and I agree. The, and there's a lot of good reasons why Christian Platonism has disintegrated. Not the least of which is that it gave birth to the modern sovereign self in its own decomposition. Uh, because there was a certain kind of uh, uh, germ or seed within it uh, that led to that uh, to that de de uh, uh, devolution, as so to speak. Uh, I think the hopeful thing is the contemporary apocalyptic turn in theology. We cannot simply assert transcendence as a philosophical first principle and expect to get any traction with it in this prison house of postmodernity. What we need is a break-in. Someone needs to break into this prison house and tie up the strong man in order to plunder his goods. That sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? A little par apocalyptic parable of Jesus, right? And what the Christian congregation can be is not free people, self-proclaimed free people, but freed people, people freed by the advent, the insertion of Jesus Christ into the midst of their reality, which sets them free so that with their consciences and their souls, they will not surrender to any heteronomous powers, but rather being bound to God in thanksgiving for this unfathomable love, 
they will be freed concretely to love in the world, one another, and thence outward in the congregations, caring for the broken and hurting all around it. I mean, yeah, <laughs> of course. I guess I, I hear you say that, and it's stirring. And at the same time, I know that all of the um, subsection churches on the left and the right think that that's exactly what they're doing. So I and. Um, you know, again, this is because I, I am not a baby boomer, but a cynical Gen Xer. Almost every time you talk about freedom to love, it just like gives me the not exactly the willies, but I just kind of roll my eyes. I, I guess so, you know, obviously love is the goal, but I think, you know, love as as I don't know, the means or something has been so corrupted for me. I think that we need my perspective is trying to get back to basic truth telling is the first step I've, I've in my own kind of um journey in my soul over the past year or two and and for you know various circumstantial reasons i've come to the conviction that there is no love without truth and in fact truth might even be a precondition for genuine love you see all sorts of toxic loves out there that are are based on on lies um or or control or presumptions or whatever and i don't think real love comes without speaking truthfully and i think part of for me, the problem is not so much lack of love out there as lack of truth and people just acceding way too fast to way too simplistic or untrue things that are convenient or that, or that sound really nice. I think there's a huge desire to sound good and sound loving that isn't actually loving because it isn't fundamentally true. And so I guess the what I would like to see theology doing and having that be part of congregational discipline is to just not accept what is said as true automatically but always be testing it. And I think the, the fruit of that will be better love than we have been seeing. Amen. I, I totally agree with what you're saying, Sarah. Uh, maybe not with the cynicism of a Gen Xer, but I, I, I've actually argued in several of my books that freedom to love is an inadequate formulation if it disregards uh, divine wisdom or what you were calling as tr truth-telling. Um, and that reminds me of the, the, the book that Christine Helmer edited, uh, that I have this essay which discusses uh, Václav Havel and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. The title of the book is Truth-Telling and Other Practices of Ecclesial Resistance. Uh, so we can probably put that in the show notes for folks. But I, I totally agree that love is, um, if love simply means going along to get along in a corrupt and corrupting society, it's not love at all. And, and the, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And we need the prosecuting work of the genuinely Holy Spirit if we're going to be set free to love in any truthful way. Good, good. Well, on that, I guess my 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 final exhortation would be that there are important places for critique and lots of reasons for concern, but we should be spending the vast majority of our energies on on creative and upbuilding projects, um, not in the grandiose sense, let me say, of making the world a better place. I wish everyone would just stop trying to make the world a better place. I'm convinced now that that phrase is actually blasphemous against the creator, but simply in, in what you have been given in 
and your own specific embodied givenness, do creative, upbuilding, beautiful things, and let, let the concern and critique have their their part, but don't let them dominate. Let, don't let them be the main story of your life or your minds. I think that would also do us all a world of good. And if this podcast has any value to that effect, Sarah, it's to help people realize that the postmodern story is a big fiction, and it simply is the continuation of the sovereign self of modernity by other means, and that's actually making our problems much worse. And the first truth that has to be told is that to think that you are the center of the universe and have the sovereign right to do with yourself whatever you please is uh, the essence of, of, of the predicament of sinfulness from which the Christian faith would have us delivered. We are gods. That's What better news is there than that? Everybody can just relax now. All right. Great. That was a good discussion, Dad. So next time on the show, for real this time, we will be talking about the land. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.